0: It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future.
1: Grow your business without the grind
2: in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. So if you need another reason to ditch the Gantt chart, Henry Gantt, his father was a slave holder and much of the um, idea around breaking tusks up into small pieces and kind of dangling carrots to... Um, get people to do more work was what he learned from growing up with his father managing uh, the slaves that he owned.
0: Hey, everybody, welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Erin Dignan, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Rodney Evans.
1: Hello, friends.
0: And today we're joined by our friend and colleague, Sharon Ball, a partner at The Ready. Sharon, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me. Hello, world.
0: (laughs) On today's episode, we're going to talk about exploring JEDI, that's justice, equity, diversity, inclusion, and its role in Brave New Work. But before we dig into that, let's explore a check-in round.
1: We will. We must. And we'll ask Sharon to do it because that's what happens when our friends and colleagues come on the show. So Sharon, (laughs) check us in. (laughs)
2: Empowerment. Empowerment indeed. I will seize that authority and check us in. So let's check in by sharing what we think our listeners should know about us and our social identities before we get into this conversation, just so they know where we're coming from.
0: Got it. Okay. You go first. So we know how to do it right.
2: Okay. So I am a cisgendered woman. I use she, her pronouns. I'm relatively on the younger side, I guess, in the workforce in my early thirties. I um, am British. I was born in England, but ethnically I'm Punjabi, which means I'm from the North of India and have grown up across England, the US, and also Hong Kong. So that's why my accent sounds very odd. Uh, So I I bring kind of that global perspective uh, in in terms of how I think about this topic and still have much to learn in this space as well.
0: Nice. Uh, Okay, cool. So I am a white, straight male. And I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up without a ton of money or connections or anything like that. But my mm-hmm. family was definitely upwardly mobile. I'm short. I'm like five six, five seven, if I kind of wear shoes with very big soles. Uh, you know, no disabilities to speak of. Yeah, I think that's it.
1: All right. Uh, I am also white and heterosexual and married to a dude who I talk about a lot on this podcast. <laughs> and I am in my early forties. I'm actually I'm turning forty two on Monday, right? Forty two? That's right. I, I always forget, but I think that's right. And I've been it, I've been very interested in exploring um, these identities recently. And particularly in exploring white women's roles in the Mm. perpetuation of white supremacy and Mm -hmm. racial injustice in this country. And so those are identities that I've not thought critically about so much in the past as I am now. Or if I did, it was through the lens of being the victim of the patriarchy, Mm. not through the (laughs) lens of being the oppressor. So, uh, yeah, a lot of um, opening and work to do. Uh, around those identities that I carry. So Sharon, we're super excited to sort of map the territory with you. There's so much to say about justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. And I suspect that this will be the beginning of a series of unfolding conversations because there's no way we can get to everything that we want to in one short podcast episode. Mm-hmm. But why don't we just start with talking a little bit about those terms? So, you know, where where did you start hearing those terms that you have sort of brought to us at the Ready to Be Considering? And what mm-hmm. is the difference between them?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. So the diversity and inclusion are probably the more common terms we hear uh, often. And so I'll start with explaining those a bit. They'll probably be familiar to folks, but diversity is really about asking who is in the room, who is in the organization, and what identities do these people hold? And then inclusion is asking who has a seat at the table? So do the diverse identities that we have in the organization have agency over their voice? Um, mm-hmm. And are they able to interact in the organization? Are they included in ways that are beneficial to them and everyone else as well? And so that's that's the common terms that we hear talked around a lot, diversity, inclusion, d D&I. And then I heard about JEDI, from I'm not sure who developed it, but I first heard about it from folks at U.S. Climate Action Network. Shout out to the organizers. <laughs> and so justice is looking at a more holistic uh, framework or a more holistic system. And I find Cornell West's definition of justice to be just really easy and simple, that it's what love looks like in public. And so that's what I think about when I think about justice. What does it mean to have a system that is grounded in justice and really a demonstration mm-hmm. of love and public? And then equity is um, asking not just who's in the room and who has a seat at the table, but it's asking what resources are being allocated to the marginalized voices at the table. It requires acknowledging whose voices are typically not heard or which voices are not privileged in our society. And, you know, can we allocate resources in a way, lift those voices up in a way, listen to what their needs are and prioritize those so that we really have true, uh, fairness. And that's different from equality, which is more about saying, well, um, everybody gets a T-shirt. We learned this from our, um, partner Taye Sherrod, she says, with equality, everybody gets a t-shirt, but equity is about making sure everyone gets a t-shirt that fits. And so if you think about JEDI as the order of the terms as well, it's, I find that really helpful because it's about saying, let's focus on justice and equity first in order to get true diversity and inclusion in a way that's not tokenizing or harmful as well.
0: And I feel like we often do it in the opposite order, where it's like, "Hey, for let's sure. get some, let's get some folks that look different than us in here," and then suddenly they're not having a great time and they're leaving, and everybody's like, "What gives?" Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's an interesting order.
1: I think one of the things that's exciting about this moment, certainly, uh, for people who are systems thinkers and org designers is that the language around systems design mm-hmm. has really come to the forefront. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's mm-hmm. certainly the first time at, as a non-scholar of these topics, it's certainly the first time that I have seen um, really like everywhere discussions mm-hmm. about Uh, how systems are designed and whose table is it that we're inviting people to. And Mm -hmm. what does it, if we talk about equity, that means equity in the eyes of people who have been marginalized, not in Mm -hmm. the eyes of the historic systems designers (laughs) and things like this that are, to me, feel very intuitive because of the kind of work that we do. But historically, to your point, Erin, having been in and around, uh, DEI conversations in large companies a bit. It has been very centered on the individual rather than on mm-hmm. the system, and it's been yeah. more centered on like you know percentages and recruitment tactics and mm-hmm. um and representation. And I'm not saying that like that isn't also a part of it, but um sure. t- you know t- to the point about systems design, it's like w- what happens for people when they actually enter a system that is not designed to welcome or nurture or really truly include them.
0: Yeah, And I feel like we're also seeing specifically with the issues around police brutality and you know the way that policing happens in different communities that like the, the part about emergent properties and org debt that unfolds without mm-hmm. necessarily even a designer at the helm is also really prevalent. And so it's like, there's there's a part of this that's obviously designed very consciously to benefit and preference certain folks. And there's also the part of it that's just like, when you just let a system roll, when you just like let the chili cook for, you know, a hundred years, all kinds of weird stuff creeps out. And if you're not looking at it through the lens of like, what are our tensions? What are we going to try? Like, what can we do? What interventions are we going to, you know, employ? then it's not surprising to see both really positive and really super negative stuff happen.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we're already starting to get into the conversation that we want to have. But I guess I'd like to just ask you, Sharon, Like from your perspective, what is the conversation about, at least for the ready in this moment of Black Lives Matter and mm-hmm. this like sort of cultural zeitgeist.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah. So I think it's important to name that the Black Lives Matter movement's been around for seven years, I think, nearly, mm-hmm. and it's it's um, only now that it's become so mainstream and accepted. Um, you know that white people, especially, are waking up to. All the work that needs to be done, and polls are showing that they care a lot about this, and see um, racial injustice as a big issue. So we, I think, at the ready, we're really grappling with. Um, we we've known we had have work to do um, around how our Jedi uh, mm-hmm. our Jedi work, and not wanting to feel a rush to come out with a statement or have anything to say, but. I think it's more important to use this moment in time to really explore and reflect what does this mean for us, what lessons can we take from um, what the Black Lives Matter movement has done to create awareness um, and action across all kinds of organizations uh, to look at what it means for us uh, at the ready, but also what it means for our work. And so I think the conversation is really just us starting to explore that connection and explore what we can learn it's not designed to be like listen to this podcast and learn how to become an anti-racist organization or anything like that um we have a lot to learn a lot more to learn in the space than we have to to teach so this is really just us exploring in the hopes that our exploration helps others and theirs as well
1: yeah Absolutely, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is, um, so I have like a giant whiteboard with the can with the OS canvas in my office, and, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I put it there when um, it you know when the calls for defunding the police became very loud, I was like, that's really interesting to me in terms of what fields of the canvas that touches, and. And what the starting points are. And and what I realize is unlike when we, for example, did this series, um, Ready for Anything about the pandemic, like we, I think Aaron and I had very strong views on sort of what went in the containers. Like we were like, you know, in remote work, in decentralized environments, in a more networked situation, this is how you should think about meetings or how you should think about information. Where my mind is right now is like, I still believe that we have a lot to um, provide and support in terms of the containers. But I'm very interested in the people who are at the center of this telling us like what goes in them. So like when you think about something like defunding the police, I'm like, cool. I don't, sure, that sounds right. Like that sounds right based on what people who know more than I do are saying. And then what I get curious about is like, okay, in terms of like, the other fields of the canvas that resourcing impacts, how do you think about that? So if you're going to move mm-hmm. money, what does that mean in terms of strategy? Or what does that mean in terms of authority or structure or information? So like, I I feel like in this moment for me personally, like sitting where I sit in the ready, I'm just like, I'm just noticing the containers and really trying to listen, particularly to like black experts who know about the content of what should go in those containers. Mm -hmm.
0: It's super interesting to me because I do start to look at the content ideas and the way they're then employed from the lens of like, you know, what's the difference between evolution and revolution? Um, and, and most of the stuff we talk about at work is not about overthrow. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not about like burn it down and rebuild. It's more about like, how can we all as agents in the system use our consent to like experiment our way to a better tomorrow. Right. And so when you think about something like defund the police as an, as an idea, I immediately go to like, okay, so we want to do that. So then how do we want to do that? Do we want to do it as a kind of a a a top-down move that comes from political pressure where we just like do it? Do we want to do it in partnership or not in partnership with the people that it will affect on both sides or not? Um, You know, do, is it an experiment or not? Like, what are we really saying when we say that? And I think because we don't have a lot of practice at social level, community level experimentation and looping and learning um, there's a lot of different people reading into that different ways. So it's like, you know, some people read that and they're like, no way, dude, what if someone attacks me on the street? And other people are like, no, what we mean is we're going to like reinvent what it mm-hmm. means to police society with different kinds of agents, with different kinds of skills, mm-hmm. and we're going to move money around. And like that is obviously a lot more um, palatable to, to someone who doesn't understand. So I just, yeah, I don't know. I think you're right, uh, Rodney, that it is so much about these containers and what fills them and we're you know we're probably not the right people to like write out that script but i do think we're the right people to ask questions about like well how do we actually play that out then in a way that is either disruptive on purpose or less disruptive in order to maintain some sense of you know connection and civility at a community level Mm
1: -hmm. yeah and in the police example um very specifically like one of to me um it's been really interesting to watch the conversation unfold around, like, you know, school resource officers and mm-hmm. funding and mental health professionals, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, like, all all of those things that I read about seem logical to me and rational to me. And then mm-hmm. also, it begs the question for me of, like, are we clear on what the purpose is of police in mm-hmm. our society? Right, right. Yeah,
0: back and to like, the purpose box. And, like, if your belief
1: is that the perfect purpose of the police is to, like – protect white people from other people then that's one kind of design and if your yeah. belief is that the police are there to like support a vibrant community that's inclusive then that's a different kind of design and it's like totally. to me, there's like all like all of the discussion of roles around policing mm-hmm. is super interesting and feels like the right conversation and i'm also like how could the conversation happen? And maybe it's just like it has to be fractal or it has to be local or it has to be state. I don't know. But how does the conversation happen that's like this is the purpose of Mm -hmm. this team and this Mm -hmm. is what we're designing for because to me things like role clarity and authority like naturally shake out of that. But I think there's a lot of polarity in terms of what people believe the police should and should not be doing.
2: Yeah. I think – I think the conversation more recently has even shone a light on what the purpose of the police is. And so I think the, the thing that's happening right now is everyone's studying up or everyone who cares is studying up on a lot of history, um, around these things. So I don't think in the past seven years, there had been, at least I'll speak from my perspective as much questioning into what is the purpose of the police and let's look right. A lot of what we do in our work is um, we talk to organizations about the history of the OS and how it evolved and what the assumptions were around it um, that we don't even fully realize, but we're Mm -hmm. like living in it and swimming in it. Uh, And so I think that's really what's happening now. I don't think we were saying a few years ago, look, Um, well, non-Black people were not saying as much a few years ago. uh, The police were essentially designed to protect white people from non-white people. Um, And now we're kind of able to have that awareness even, right? That's the first step is getting aware of what is the system and how does it work. I think the question around evolution or revolution or how we get the... it's a tough one, and I I go back to the authority field of the canvas. I think the authority is so um, concentrated mm-hmm. uh, with you know with a few with police chiefs with uh, their relationships with uh, s- cities, and it's just you know compounded over time and created uh, a real. Uh, power imbalance. And yeah. I think the cool thing that's happening with Defund the Police is we're opening up that information field of the canvas, right? Mm-hmm. Um, pushing for more transparency. Like, I think uh, just the other day, 3,500 people, and that didn't account for the people that were camping out at City Hall in New York, like, 3,500 people listened to the budget meet hearing. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. In New York City, right, and it's creating this um, this engagement and this uh, power power distribution in a way just by opening things up um, and creating more of that accountability. And I don't think we'll be able to talk about what it means to really uh, redesign these systems until that authority gets further distributed, and there's more accountability to realizing, oh, like, people do care about this, our constituents and ci- uh, citizens care about this. Um, and I'm also super curious to learn what ends up happening in Minneapolis. I guess we all mm-hmm. have a lot to learn from their experiment, too. Yeah, Yeah,
0: there's definitely that and others happening. It's also interesting to me to note, I mean, you know, Rodney, you keep connecting this back to the work. And the other piece of this that really hits home for me that I, I don't even know how to sit with exactly. But we always say, like, it's not the people, it's the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what's interesting about that is when you look at this situation, obviously there are some pretty serious bad actors in the system doing things that are unforgivable. And also there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people who are just in a system that was designed to do exactly what you said, Sharon, mm-hmm. um, in ways both subtle and not subtle. And I, I wonder about the way that we talk about the, you know, that entire group and that entire community in, in the lens of, or through the lens of, you know, it, is it the people, is it the system and what's the interplay between the two? Because it is interesting to play the game of like, oh yeah, in Camden, they, you know, defunded the police, they rebuilt the system, they rehired a lot of the people and those very same people are acting in a different way. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it's not that everybody can do that. There are definitely yeah. some people that just have to go. But, I, you know, what do you think about that?
1: I have thought a lot about that. And, you know, we've we've had some challenging conversations inside our own company recently about For sure. the people aspect of mm-hmm. systems and what, uh, you know, what powerful nodes in a network can do. And sometimes, as we are seeing in this, uh, movement. There are people who are making like incredible amounts of change with fairly limited authority, which is like right. kind of unbelievable to see. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, like I've I've seen like huge protests uh, in my own city that are organized by a couple of teenagers who use social media and get like, you know, 10,000 Durhamites downtown, um, peacefully protesting and singing beautiful songs together. It's like, it's all, it's like, it's awesome to see. And then conversely, um, you know, we see bad actors, uh, to your point, Aaron, and, and a lot of people who have, um, put those bad actors into power and continue to keep them there and support them. Yeah. Like To me, it's like I, I am beyond saying that it is one or the other, and I fundamentally believe that these things work in concert. But what right. I, what I'm looking at in this moment is like how do we design the kinds of organizations, whether you're talking about police or you're talking about a company or you're talking about a local government, how do we design the kinds of organizations where people don't have to overcome the OS in order yeah. to <laughs> do the right thing? Yeah. And that, yeah. and you know, w- when when you, when you hear people say, like, you know, not not all cops and not all cops, et cetera, et cetera. My yeah, yeah. basic take on that is like, do I believe that every police officer in America is fundamentally a monster? No, I do not. Do mm-hmm. I believe that the ones who are acting really morally are doing so uh in contravention in some way of the system that they work in? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I'm like, how do we start to design systems where people are are more, are more in, um, incented and directed and nudged and socially pressured to behave in the right way? And how do we rely less on, like, ethical behavior or moral or individualistic moral compasses to heroically overcome what is being signaled? And the, And hear, this hear. is true in terms of police. It's true in terms of companies. It's true in terms of, in terms of like, you know how you know how people have historically been criminalized and like the the school to prison pipeline for young black people in our country it's like you have countless examples of people overcoming the shit system that they were <laughs> born into and the mm-hmm. funnel through which they've been traveling but like good for those people. And let's not rely on that. That's like that start to look enough. at those funnels and be like, you know, why does it take that level of effort or disruption to mm-hmm. not to not succumb to, you know, what what the system is designed for?
0: It's the yeah. classic exceptionalist argument, right? Exactly. Like somebody became a millionaire, so we don't have a problem with inequality. It's That's like, right. dude, let's seriously, not,
1: let's not let's not ever say that again. Yeah. The, the the bootstrap argument from like my boomer family members is one that I enjoy having (laughs) a lot.
2: Yeah. I, I also think it's, um, it's just that place we go to. I mean, we see it in organizations a lot and we mentioned this earlier, but, um, there's a lot of focus on implicit bias training and, um, you know, being aware of your individual biases. And that is absolutely fundamental work to do. And we can't rely on that alone um, because, as we know, investment in these kinds of trainings don't really pay off when the system that you interact with doesn't reinforce those behaviors, right? Um, The police have been, a lot of um, police systems have been Using anti-bias training, have you know for the past seven years, there's been demands for more of this um, as a result of what's been happening for many, many years. Um, killings that have ha- happened over many years. So it's it's a both. You need both. Um, you can't just rely on getting folks to go to a training and then hoping that uh, they'll change when the system is just still encouraging the wrong kind of behavior um yeah and we see that a lot in organization i think that's that's the part of what excites me about the connection between jedi and and brave new work is just more of that focus on like what if we just acknowledge that the organizations we work in um are are designed for white men i mean that's how mm-hmm. that's how they were created they were d- designed for uh white men to be able to control people and generate profits um all the way back to taylor and scientific management uh and and that's still the system and so while implicit bias training and all this education is absolutely important and you know get some get some diversity councils going and affinity groups and all of that. But let's have the conversation around how we recreate, how we reinvent an OS that is not so grounded in white supremacy, but that could work for everyone.
1: I couldn't agree more, Sharon. And I, I think it's, it's in some ways, it's no different than any other, type of change. Yeah. And, you know, how many clients have come to us because they've done something like, you know, a an old school change management effort or an old school Agile implementation and they're like, you know, we did a bunch of training and nothing happened. And it's like, mm-hmm. I think one of the things, you know, we, we know better than that. Like we know that what training is great for is awareness creation. But mm-hmm. if you don't go a layer deeper into the practices that bring it to life, it doesn't go beyond awareness creation. And maybe you have people whose eyes are a bit, like their aperture is a bit wider, but that doesn't do much in terms of actually shaping behavior. And I feel like, you know, a couple of things that have happened at the ready in the last year, um, to me have been good examples of how this actually, works in the work. And mm-hmm. so, you know, one of the things that Sharon, you and I have worked really hard on is around our hiring process. And you know, I don't we don't need to spend a lot of that time ta- a lot of time on that here and and we have other episodes about it, but but one of the things that I've reflected on as I've been thinking more about systemic injustice is the fact that the real Even though our first principle for designing that process was reducing bias and increasing diversity in terms of the ready's future hires, that was Mm -hmm. our first principle. But to me, the real conversations and the real learning happened in the more controversial design choices that raised people's hackles and particularly Mm -hmm. raised the hackles of white men in our system when we were like, Mm -hmm. we think that we should nudge these kinds of metrics and we think that we should we think this question might be filtering out people who are not white men who haven't had access to this et cetera et cetera yeah and and I think what's been very and and similarly in some of our recent conversations about different compensation structures my point is just that the the rubber meets the road when you start making real choices about the practices that confront the historical, Scientific management, you know, control oriented design that you're talking Mm -hmm. about. And until Mm -hmm. you get into that conversation where you're like, no, dude, for real, we are going to make a filtering decision differently for people that look like you than for people that look like her, until you get into that level of granularity, it's all sort of like theoretical and pretty easy to sign up for.
0: Right. And as the resident white dude in the room, uh, a good clue that you're on the right track is when you're like, Hey, wait a second. <laughs> you know, like,
2: I don't if, you're like looking,
0: it. <laughs> if you're looking at a design choice and you have a gut level reaction that like, wait, that doesn't feel right. Mm. It probably is. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so I have learned to tune into that through, particularly through the hiring process. Like, wait, a lot of my, you know, preferences about how we hire and how we filter and when, and how we make choices. Um, are just are just that they're just preferences. And they're often born of, a you know, a tradition and a set of privileges that get exercised and get a certain result. So I think tuning into discomfort uh, is is especially useful here. And and the other thing I wanted to say that's sort of unrelated, but Sharon, you just you just sort of threw this out. And I was like, Whoa, light bulb. Um, I've never thought about the fact that our modern way of working, which the ready is often, you know, banging pots and pans, yelling about how it was invented on a factory floor a hundred years ago. Um, but like that predates the civil rights movement. Yes. Yes. And so really naming and knowing that and saying, like, wait a second, most of the things we do, how we budget, how we set up authority, how we set up hierarchy, how we do roles and responsibility, like all that stuff was born in a time where we were like decades prior to a civil rights movement. Um, and, and honestly, like just getting around to letting women have the vote. Mm-hmm. And so that is just, I think a really powerful idea. And I wanted to like give that some time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And yeah. Sharon, like maybe for our listeners and we can link that Boston review article that, mm-hmm. um, I don't know if it was Yurian who shared it or you who shared it originally, it but was that urine. shit blew my mind. <laughs> yeah,
2: it it was, um, yeah, it was pretty great to learn about. I mean, I think it's just, it made me reflect on a lot of things, right? If we were out in the world talking about how the legacy OS um, and and Taylorism is grounded in in slavery and kind of born out of that, would would our work be as successful? Would we be as well-received? Probably not. So there, you know, when we talk to talk to organizations and the reason they want to change it's, it's less, Hey, we have realized our OS is pretty oppressive. It's more, um, how do we be more productive? How do we be more adaptive? We realize we're not going to be successful moving forward. And so I've always had this, this feeling in my gut around, well, this, this movement, brave new work is really about creating a more just world like for me that's why i'm called to be here and so then to to connect it to the history of like oh it's like grounded in um quite problematic history right i mean slavery was an economic system and then those systems just evolved into new new systems to oppress that were more socially acceptable at the time and the article talks about how there were congressional hearings and i think 1911, because Congress was concerned about scientific management, uh, feeling a little bit like slavery. Uh, And Taylor at the time, I think, said, well, no, you know, um, he did not have a very people positive response. Uh, The assumption was, (laughs) well, we, you know, as um, like black workers need uh, the white managers to basically educate them and make choices for them because they don't know better. And then the article also I learned about how um, Henry Gantt. Um, so if you need another reason to ditch the Gantt, shot, <laughs> this is one of them. I mean, his um, his father was a slave holder, and much of the the um, idea around breaking tusks up into small pieces and kind of dangling carrots to um, get people to do more work uh, for the pay, the wage that was associated with that task uh, was what he learned from growing up with his um, father managing uh, the slaves that he owned. And uh, So that was also very fascinating. And so you have that history also also parallel with what you're talking about, Aaron, with like the civil rights movement and then even um, like the labor movement and, and Mm -hmm. how that often that excluded um, black workers for a very long time. And then the moment they were allowed to get involved, it was like, well, we better like limit unions and make sure that that uh, you know, unions Mm -hmm. don't have as much impact. And so all of those things together have kind of created the OS that we swim in now. And, you know, I'm, I'm just hopeful that more of the conversation around Jedi moving forward can be can be less about how do we um, work within the system that we currently have to, you know, include more voices and move towards, like, we just need a fundamentally different OS uh, if mm-hmm. we really want to be anti-racist, if we really want to be um, feminist.
1: And I really want to ask you guys in this moment, because it feels to me like... When we talk about history, I think Sharon, you're exactly right. Like the, the siren song that CEOs can hear is like, this is no longer serving. And you know, Mm -hmm. you've gotten what you can out of efficiency and now you need something new. And, um, and frankly, I did not know nearly as much, uh, as I do now about the history of scientific management and why it's jacked, um, in, ter- in like be- besides the sort of factory floor orientation mm-hmm. um what what i'm wondering now that i want to ask you guys is like how how might we incorporate more of this particular language and 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 now that we kn- now that we know more than we knew 6 months ago um like it feels to me like there's an opportunity to work in more of the historical um, mm-hmm. roots of these designs into how we talked in in order to disrupt patterns for ourselves but also within the organizations that we work in and like Sharon i i hear you that like we probably hold some assumption about what's palatable and what's not palatable and i'm just wondering like how true is that assumption mm-hmm. and what might we try um because as a person who's been using like the words white supremacy in a very White and traditional client organization a lot recently. Like mm. I haven't gotten fired yet, and so I'm just curious. <laughs> like, you know what what could we what could we be doing differently?
2: It's a really good question. I'm glad you're talking about it with with your client. That's, I mean, I think that's the first step. Is what I'm learning and hearing about is, are we just naming? naming it for what it is Mm. Um, because I I don't, you know, even just little things like um, talking about being agile or being more productive, are we doing that more than we're talking about being just or being Mm -hmm. more human or being more compassionate? Um, And so I'm starting to notice like what is the language that I'm using or trending towards and how is that kind of complicit? Uh, And so I do want to start, naming um naming more intentionally like the this connection um talking a lot more about power and control than than agility and um productivity uh, and just helping helping clients uh, see that connection and understand more that like the practices that we're introducing in many ways are. Uh, designed to distribute power and also disrupt, like a lot of um, what research has shown around what white supremacist culture looks like.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: Kenneth Jones and Tema Okun have kind of done a lot of work to um, outline some characteristics that get at get at what this culture looks like, uh, white supremacist culture, and a lot of what we're doing with making more complexity conscious and more people positive OSs is, is like disrupting perfectionism, disrupting mm-hmm. paternalistic leadership and power hoarding and getting people to um, disrupt either or thinking and um, thinking there's only one right way and start to really embrace complexity. Uh, and so I, I wonder if there's more room for me to play with just talking about distribution of power and talking about disrupting um, some of this culture, because the reason, I think you, you know, obviously I don't think we're going to be worried, having to worry about getting fired, but a lot of the clients that we're working for are starting to wake up to this as well and Mm -hmm. care about this, right. Um, are starting to want to do work around racial, racial justice and really, um, bring it into their work. And so I think there's a lot more room for us to make that connection for them. And that often starts with just uh, naming it for what it is. And sitting in some of my own discomfort I have around that as a young woman of color and uh, in the workplace, I I do definitely sometimes get worried about some of the language that I use, but I'd love to play with, with more of that.
0: Yeah this is so interesting to me cuz like it's right at the crux of it for us and I think it's incredibly complex like this this makes my mind light up in every possible corner of itself about like all right first of all what are we trying to do again back to like revolution or evolution what power do we have as the ready In that context, Mm -hmm. how have other context clues told us a story about what it takes? So, like, Mm. this is not a movement that just happened. This Mm -hmm. is a moment and a movement that happened in the midst of a global pandemic Mm -hmm. with 45 million people out of work, a lot of them white, a lot of them black. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, there's a very particular chemistry going on right now that enables this kind of action. Mm -hmm. And so I want to, I want to tune into that. And I want to notice that like, even with a client who's on board, even with a client who like really sees this potential, the economic operating system has to be Mm -hmm. changed as Mm -hmm. well. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like the idea that we can just be like, ah, fuck agility, fuck adaptivity, (laughs) fuck performance. Like that's not going to happen until we can also address the other side of this equation, which is the economic OS. And even then, I think, you know, it's, I I, want to be clear that like, the goal here is not to abolish a world in which people have different outcomes. Mm -hmm. The goal is to abolish a world in which people don't have equity and, you know, inclusion and a seat at the table at the starting line. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, um, I think there's just a lot to this. And my sense is that like, it's a little bit of boil the frog or peel the onion where I see Jedi in the outcomes of our work, whether we say it or not. And I think saying it more, especially in the beginning, is actually really valuable right now both mm-hmm. just like ethically and morally and also like believe me i am the first one who's like hey can i vilify the old way of working more great <laughs> like give me the tools and so i think it's interesting to start to say like it's not just a gantt chart it's not just a pain in the ass like mm-hmm. it's literally something that comes from you know a racist origin and and so that to me is is very interesting and i'm very curious to play with that and see how people sit with that and how they react and if that helps us move faster and just as someone that's done this for a long time, I really believe in the karate kid, paint the fence, wax yeah. the car um, modality, which is like, if I just have someone doing a check in round, if I have someone distributing authority, if I have someone playing the game differently, if they're painting the fence, and then suddenly I'm like, ha, you know, Jedi karate a little mm-hmm. bit, I-, I actually think that's still valuable. So I don't want to, I don't want to... um I don't want to risk breaking the pattern of continuous unfolding that I see in work culture in order to be aggressively in favor of revolution. And as a human being, I'm kind of there. And so I feel like there's a little like there's a little schism or delta there that I'm still sorting out and sensing into.
2: I actually think I I hear you and I actually think there could be room for more opening with some some co- aspects of what we're doing, right? So yes. you all yes. have been ta- in an earlier episode talking about transparency, particularly with compensation, mm-hmm. and that's just still an area where to like Rodney, you said people get get really nervous about, um, and it's like, what we can't we can't make <laughs> compensation transparent, and I think if you use the argument of, well, it will, you know, help um, people feel more engaged or um, more included, like the, these other reasons, um, you know, wasted, uh, you don't waste as much energy and swell. Uh, you don't have, you have more complexity because you're more complexity conscious because more people are kind of sensing, um the real work that's happening and advocating for their pay. But if you also use the l- lens of Jedi, it's like, how could we not make trans uh, compensation transparent? Like that's been right. one of the biggest things for me with working at the ready is it's the first place I've worked where I know what everyone's making. And as a woman of color at work, like it's the first place I've worked where I haven't been, Uh, disproportionately underpaid for my work, you know, and Mm. and that's very real. That has very real consequences for the life that I'm living. Uh, And so I think with certain things that we advocate for, how can the language we use and the lens we bring to it actually create more of an opening um, to to take that step when I think sometimes clients are a bit nervous because it's like I, I can't quite make the connection between why, making compensation transparent will help me be more adaptive.
0: Mm. I like that.
2: Me too. And the
1: the other thing it brings up for me is just like, you know, basic sort of behavioral psychology, which is that people – People change because they want to go towards something or because they want to move away from something. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of what we have talked about with clients is what they are trying to move toward, right? We spend a lot of time on the outcomes that they're seeking to achieve and the purpose Mm -hmm. that they want to coalesce around, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I think in terms of avoidance, you know, we, we, we certainly nod to disengagement and extractive practices and organizations and people like get that on a personal Mm -hmm. level, but I think there is something else compelling for us to start folding into the conversation that is about moving away from racist systems Mm -hmm. and that like these, there, there is, um, you know, compensation being a great example, Sharon, um, and and looking at the the historical roots of people like Taylor and Gantt and, and looking at how compensation practices uphold traditionally white supremacist systems. Like that's just true. Like that just yeah. is true. Um, you know, not having people have agency over how they are paid, what they make, able to see others um information like having people who generally fall along certain racial and gendered lines being in better positions to negotiate or having Mm -hmm. more leverage or having more um, generational security so that they're less reliant on these organizations, blah, blah, blah. We could talk about, we could do a whole episode just (laughs) on that. But my point is that like, what's emerging for me and what I'm learning in this conversation is there is a... Very important argument that people have made, but we have not yet made um and in our languaging around the why of transforming systems that has to do with dismantling white supremacy
2: mm-hmm.
0: and that lands well with me, particularly um in at that practice level, mm-hmm. where I feel like you know when you when you zoom back to like the reason to do transformation at all. I think this is one of those reasons for sure, because it's something to move away from. And there are the things to move towards that we talk about all the time. So there's like a lot of different colors, you know, uh, on the painting there for reasons to play. But once you're playing, I think it's totally valid to just be like, oh, that practice, that's a racist practice. Don't do that. Don't do that. And like that to me seems really clean. You know, it seems seems a lot cleaner than saying like we should transform organizations exclusively to be anti-racist. Um, where I feel like we have a lot more to play with at that level. But down at the practice level, it's that, I don't know, that just like intuitively lands with me that like that would work, which is is all I care about.
2: That's racist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Stop it. So this has been a riveting exploration, but I'm curious to know what is next for us specifically as members of the ready. And as we work on our own OS. We've talked a bit about what this means for us in our work with clients, but what's next for us at the ready and how we're evolving our OS based on what we're learning about Jedi?
0: Well, I think, I mean, the first thing that jumps to mind for me, the, there's the obvious stuff, right? I mean, we we revamped the hiring process. We're, we're trying very hard, I think, to to grow the diversity aspect of of what's going on at the ready and i think and i think we're succeeding or we're going to succeed i'm excited about that but actually the the piece that i'm sitting most with from the training that we did with tai together at our last retreat was this idea of like can we learn to be in conversation about this stuff without uh, letting, you know, the difference between intent and impact derail us and mm-hmm. make us feel blame and mm-hmm. guilt and fear. And I see so many people out in the world right now, particularly people that look like me, being like, I don't want to say anything because I don't want to screw up. Mm-hmm. And that means that we can't have a conversation. And so then nothing's going to change. And I I just really worry about that. And so I, I want to like, build a culture of capacity where we can say stuff, say the wrong stuff, thrash around in it together and like do that in a space of connection and love and openness. And to me, that's just a skills thing and a practice thing. Mm-hmm. So, so even though it doesn't feel maybe like, uh, as action oriented as, as people might hope, I actually just like, I'd love to finish the year being really good at talking about this stuff together.
1: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Nice. I th- I think for me, um, there are two there are two things that are on my mind besides continuing to really try to like do the right things in hiring. Um, one is we've taken another pass at our essential intent, and Sharon, I know you are working on. Specific language that has to do with Jedi that becomes a part of our essential intent, I'd really like for that to be something that we as a group are compelled by and somewhat maybe provoked by, and that we figure out in terms of our own operating rhythm, how we are looking at that essential intent more frequently to see if what we are actually doing from an initiative perspective and from a connection perspective and from all of the perspectives... Like, are we doing it? Like, are we doing Mm -hmm. the things that are going to bring us toward the thing that we say that we want, essentially? Mm -hmm. And then the other piece that has been on my mind and has been a bit controversial at the ready, and I just think we fundamentally have more work to do, is about how we value different parts of our work. And mm-hmm. you know, the I think we have coalesced a bit around the understanding that paying for the tip of the spear in terms of things like sales is something that is potentially sexist and probably racist.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: it doesn't mean that we should necessarily stop doing that, but we should look more holistically at the value creation from ideas that happen in conversation straight through delivery that makes our clients more productive more adaptive and m- more rich frankly and and get smarter about that because we understand how much of the laboring in value streams in any organization um is done by women and and people of color and marginalized Mm -hmm. communities, and that that is often not recognized from a compensation perspective in the same way as the more performative, um, Mm -hmm. externally facing sort of theatrical aspects of our work, which also tend to fall along the lines of white people and white men. Um, Mm -hmm. Those those things tend to be more compensated, and not just Mm -hmm. in our system, but in many systems. And so I'm I'm interested in both the essential intent piece and then particularly around our pay practices, what feels equitable to everyone who all of whom are like, you know, trying to figure this out and wanting to recognize the hard work that contributes to our commons.
2: Awesome. I'm excited for both those things. <laughs> well, yeah. The only thing I would add that you both didn't mention is it's been really interesting to sit with the equality versus equity um, conversation and, you know, to, to prioritize equity, it, it has to be equity even over equality mm-hmm. and um, so much of self-management and the way we work at the ready is really grounded in, in equality, right? Everybody has, Um, the same rights to bring a proposal uh, for how we should work, to propose governance, to raise attention, uh, to participate in our system and in Slack or in meetings. And so I'm curious about what changes we need to make in more subtle ways across the OS, um, whether it's in how we meet, or um, how we do governance, even how we make decisions—that is more grounded in in equity uh, okay. rather than equality. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to just start like exploring that and having that conversation, uh, and then bring some changes as as they evolve and make sense.
0: Well, it sounds like we have lots to do.
2: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're
0: busy. And with all that in mind, maybe we should draw things to a close. So let me say, Sharon, thank you so much for joining us today. And
2: Thanks so much for having me. It was really great.
0: Rodney, of course, always a pleasure as yeah. well.
1: That was rad. Um, I got a voicemail this morning from my best friend who said that we are doing an amazing job on this podcast. And if that <laughs> isn't true... I don't know what is. So if you agree with my best friend, Hollis, please go leave us a review, preferably with like all the stars, because that's great. Um, We love to hear your comments. We read all of them and reviews and forwards and sharing help get this podcast into the hands of those who will dig it and who will use it and who will make work better as a result.
0: Awesome. And uh, as always, quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good in the studio. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. You can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something.